Hey everybody, uh, Risto here with George Mason University. I'm joined by uh, with Aaron and Michael today for Article Club number seven. Um, this is going to be the last Article Club we have of season two. We'll be taking the summer off while we read a little bit more. So if you are interested in doing a book club for summer, uh, we are reading uh, Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology by Michelle Miller. Um, you can find this book uh, pretty much everywhere. Um, so we're recording podcasts with this one at the end of June. So you have about a month to read this book, especially if you're a Pete educator, I think it'd be a, a great thing for you uh, to read. And you know, honestly, with, uh, with a majority of classes, probably in the K-12 setting, having some online aspect going forward, it won't be a bad read either. So Today's article is titled A Generative Synthesis for Kinesiology, Lessons from History and Visions for the Future. Uh, this is an article by uh, Hal Lawson and Scott Kretschmar. It was published in 2017 in Kinesiology Review. So let's get into this uh, article. Um, I, I like this article. It was a great review of the history of kinesiology and PE. So in my um, online summer reading seminar for our online master's program in PE, um, we assign the 1990 Quest article series um, that, one, that I read in my summer reading seminar with, uh, with Steve at uh, Teachers College. And I found these to be you know, relatively combative at times. And, um, but one thing that I remember that I did not learn about or then I just wasn't paying enough attention um, was this McCloy uh, versus Williams battle that was documented in this uh, in the paper that we're talking about today. And I found that so interesting because and I may not just know about this award, uh, but I do know about the McCloy lecture. And so I'm wondering how this battle actually ended. And if we think about the way they talked about there are winners and losers in these, you know, binary dichotomous arguments. And so was McCloy eventually the winner because we had the McCloy lecture, which is the most prestigious award that you get as a, as a scholar at Shape America? Or is there a Williams award that I don't know about? I don't know. Like, do you feel like there was a there were winners or losers in this battle? That's a good question. I mean, the McCoy Award would suggest that uh, you know that name carried more prominence. And I think was the article said that Williams had left the National Academy. It had a different name. If I yeah. got that order right, so um, he kind of took himself out of that, which is maybe one of the reasons McCoy's work carried on in that, in that world. He stayed connected. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. In when I, when I read that, it said the quote is Williams, however, resigned from the Academy reportedly because he did not want to belong to the same organization as McCloy. I'm like, man, that is some like, that is some hatred towards another scholar. You're like, you know what? I'm leaving what is now the National Academy of Kinesiology because this person's also in there. Like, he was... Yeah, that's a really intense feud, I would say. I mean, to be to leave a prestigious organization, and at that time, the first of its kind, right? Um, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and, and they were both fellows. And I think somewhere I, I wrote down that 
Williams was fellow number 17 and McCoy was 47 or something, something like that. So they're both fellows in this organization. And, you know, I, I think the interesting piece about this is they talked about how there were these serious battles between these two scholars. And you know, we, we had Ash Casey and Mikhail Quinterstead on um, last episode. And, you know, what Ash was talking about is he kind of misses these, um, like there is no academic discourse like there was in those 1990 Quest articles was like, you know, parlor tricks and all this stuff or the world according to Newell and, um, you know, these openly, I, I would say that some of them were hostile in a way. Um, I don't know if they they were perceived that way by the author. But when I read some of those, I'm like, I would be really pissed off if somebody wrote a entire rebuttal and just said my worldview is completely incorrect and how should I be even thinking about that? So I don't know, like, I, would you welcome the return of, and it doesn't have to be hostile, but would you welcome the return of these articles in JTP, Quest, like a rebuttal to XYZ paper. Hmm. I mean, as you know, I think as long as things are cordial and responsible, uh, that can be meaningful. There's been things here and there. Um, some people have taken critiques at uh, the Spark curriculum, I believe, and there was a response to that in the past few years in the JTPE issue. And I also think some of these do happen in our academic department. Um, and so they're not showing up in journals, but we're having those conversations a little bit more locally. And, you know, in physical education, sometimes it's about resources and um, keeping programs alive and philosophical views towards what's valuable. Um, so maybe having these conversations in the academic journals might give us a little bit of discourse to advocate uh, for ourselves in those conversations as sometimes there's more there's more students in the general kinesiology, like exercise science majors, so we might be at a disadvantage in some of these arguments uh, that, that we face, uh, especially without having these academic discussions that help us develop the case for the programs we we might value yeah and i would i would think that inside you know a kinesiology department these debates between kinesiology exercise physiology physical education are happening um you know i i remember in a department meeting at a university i may or may not have worked at before a researcher said you know we're not you know, no offense to physical education, but we're not physical education, we're kinesiology department. And like, raise my hand, I'm all some offense taken. Like, I took some offense to that, even though you didn't mean it. But, you know, I think that I, you know, where where you're situated in kinesiology versus a edu school of education, I think that's a debate that has been talked about for a long time. But I also think that, you know, it, it's constantly being revisited in different universities all the time. You know, we just moved at Mason. We moved to the School of Education starting in a month. You know, 
we left the school of kinesiology because we saw where that was headed and we saw a better connection with the school of education for for practicum experiences for resources for campus location and um you know i think that there are a lot of kinesiology programs i don't know how it is aaron you you're in school of education is that right College of Education, Department of Kinesiology, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that there's there's been this debate, obviously, for a long time, and I honestly think there's a new debate going on, so I'm going to throw this out there for you all to, uh, to talk about. Um, do you even think that kinesiology is current? Because from conversations that I have heard, um, people are talking about kinesiology being an old term and moving towards like more of a public health and trying to situate exercise science or bio biomechanics in a world of public health and how kinesiology might not be the term that they want to stick their hat on. So like beyond the argument of like, where does physical education fit in this? Like is kinesiology even the term that people are fighting for at the moment? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I've had, I've had this discussion, not publicly, but I, I look at kinesiology as I think they are trying to do very similar things that PE is there. We're trying to become relevant. We're trying to become more relevant as a holistic education piece. So we are part of, you know, ESSA put us into the you know, well-rounded education. We talk about social emotional learning. We talk about social justice issues. We try to, you know, make ourselves part of not a special, but we're trying to find relevance. And I think, you know, if you look at kinesiology, what do you do when you're a, you're a university that you, you know, graduate 500 kinesiology majors? Where are they getting jobs? What are the jobs available for kinesiology majors? And I think it's a really exciting major for people who are athletes, who have a dance background, who like working out, who enjoy human movement. And PE has been like the non-sexy version of that. So people are like, oh, I don't want to go to PE, but kinesiology, maybe I'll be a personal trainer. And, you know, you get a college degree as a, you know, kinesiology major and you become a personal trainer you're competing with a person who took a four-month course online and has a better charisma and has more clients than you do you know so I don't know maybe they're do you think Aaron that they're trying to align with public health because they're trying to find relevance and jobs and security yeah I don't and maybe public health isn't the right word I know that like allied health maybe so when we think about um kinesiology a lot of our students um both at wayne state and uh my previous institution and the university of hawaii are pre-professional right so they use kinesiology as a means to then apply for graduate school in many different areas whether and but most are allied health professions right and so i think that kinesiology is a very practical um degree when we think about those allied health professions and so i don't know maybe it's maybe um trying to appease that 
that realm and, and understand that you're right. If you just graduate with a de- degree in kinesiology, where can that give you? Is that a good bang for your buck? And most of the time, in my experiences, students end up taking some other type of school um, to then get to those uh, professions that are, for lack of a better word, reputable or um, give you a little bit more money coming out as a graduate. Yeah. And I think it is a great uh, jump into a master's degree program or another certification, but in and of itself, like, is kinesiology as a bachelor's degree? Like, I don't know if there are a ton of, you know, of jobs there. Maybe there are, but, right. you know. Yeah, you raised a really good question. I think um, the uh, two things it makes me think of is the undergraduate enrollment trends are really pulling us toward the allied health. It seems like all the undergrads want to be physical therapists, uh, to a lesser extent, kind of use it as a pathway to med school. Um, So I'm seeing at my current and previous job, it seems like 90% of them want to go that way, and that might be, you know, 500 students, and then you've got 20, 30 PE majors. Um, And so there's that contrast that's pulling departments in certain directions. The other thing is um, a lot of our departments are very successful getting uh, NIH dollars and other federal funding, which by definition is public health. Um, in terms of the federal government, these are public health funding agencies that are coming to kinesiology. And so we're also chasing that dollar. And a lot of what I heard um, this article talking about is, you know, we need to step back and think about who we are philosophically or else you end up getting defined by chasing these undergraduate enrollment numbers and these, um, public health dollars, which is good. We need those resources, but you know, you don't necessarily have that foundational footing, uh, when the whims of public health or student enrollment change to know who we are and what, what values we're going to stand on. Yeah. And, you know, at, at Fullerton, we had at when I came in like 1500 kinesiology majors and that's just, a lot of majors and I I think the vast majority of people who go in right away are what do you want to do PT you know occupational therapy or I want to go to physical therapy school and you know two years in you're like so you have a 2.9 respectable but you're not going to get into a PT school what are you going to do now you know and I think it is a valid I mean it's, it's a valid field. It's a, it's a great path to get there. But I think a lot of people think they're going to be physical therapists and then they just don't have the grades to get there. I mean, now you pretty much have to have a doctorate to be a physical therapist. And so, but, so let me, let me switch the debate a little bit. I think in the, um, in the article, they talked about these debates over, over the years. So, you know, they started with the ancient Greeks fighting about the human body, which was most likely the male human body, you know, meant for war or as a focus of beauty and art. And they talked about the debate between the Swedish and German systems of PE and then the debate of education for the physical versus of the physical theory versus activity. And now 
you know, even more recently, physiology and exercise science and kinesiology versus physical education. So what do you think are the debates of today? Like, are there debates that you are thinking that happen specifically in PE um, that you would bring up? And if you don't bring anything up, I have one lined up. I mean, that's an easy one, Go in my opinion. One of the biggest debates, in my opinion, is the idea of physical education versus physical activity. Yeah. Yeah. And so... What, Michael, what were you going to say? I, I was thinking about... I don't know. I, I totally agree with that. Um, the sport... So sports versus education. And, you know, teacher-coach role conflict kind of fits into that. And then I would just add, there's a lot of like tensions, if not debates, around, you know, teaching strategies uh, and so forth. But I think that gives us a good framework to start with, with the physical activity, physical education. Yeah, I, I would say the one that I, I came up with is like this critical theory lens versus MBPA, right? Of you know, people who are looking at PE as a vehicle for moderate to vigorous physical activity. And not to say this debate hasn't been around for 10, 15 years, but I think it's still active. Like, you know, you look at, I mean, even, even the McCoy and Williams debate was about McCoy looking at the body as a machine being physical and Williams looking at it as the education. You know, it reminds me of Mikhail Quinterstead's work of, you know, he's been pushing this, putting the E in PE. And, you know, I think that 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 conversation has been happening for a while. But, you know, the MVPA versus people who are doing critical research, I think has led to a point where some scholars don't feel comfortable saying, oh, I do research on moderate to vigorous physical activity or I research youth physical activity. And I think that they are looked at as, as a little bit different. So I don't, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I'm happy to hear your opinions. I think that debate's been around a lot longer. Um, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head, like how long, but I would say uh, probably more like 30 years or more. Um, And I don't, I mean, I, I go back to this idea of physical activity versus physical education because I think that there's a lot more than just the critical theory lens that kind of conflicts with the idea of like moderate to vigorous physical activity and increasing physical activity or moderate to vigorous physical activity within PE. Um, I do think that maybe it's more of a people who are like we're brought up in a physical education realm and have a passion for physical education. Um, also, obviously, have this passion for physical activity and increasing physical activity using the means of school. And so, when we think about um, that, if they're researching just physical activity, there's sure there's physical activity research by itself. But do they have a home within a greater um, field, essentially, if they don't um, relate to physical education? Does that make sense? So, like, 
we essentially have some physical activity researchers in the present that come from a background of physical education. So they have a passion of physical education. They believe in physical education, yet their research maybe for, focuses more on the physical activity side of it, right? And then therefore, um, they still affiliate with physical education, even though their research is more physical activity oriented or situated in a school setting, which brings us back to that education component, right? Yeah. And it's, it's the, can't we all just get along, you know? Yeah. yeah. But it, it comes back to that philosophy, like, well, what's the philosophy of physical education? And if we're holding true to the, to the field or what the field is supposed to be, then is there space for everybody to get along? Yeah, it, it, I, I struggle with that debate and I'm, I can, sometimes I'm like, I could, I'm fine either way. I mean, if a school wants to do it one way or the other and do it well, then, then do it, whether it's MVPA or taking a more uh, critical approach to PE. But I feel like that conversation uh, is a little bit ivory tower-ish in the disciplines and it doesn't triangulate well with um, public schools and practical knowledge that they talked about. Um, like I, you know, I don't know any schools that are having conversations about um, the extent to which they, you know, they're promoting moderate to vigorous physical activity. You know, I'm seeing debates about class size and how do we get equipment. And so, so that's my perspective from one district with some diverse schools. And there's other districts who are thinking about things differently. And so I think one thing this article really offered us was that practical knowledge, transdisciplinary knowledge um, is super valuable. And we need to think about ways to bring that into these conversations. And like, I don't know if we do that well, if we have, I, I'm just not accessing it in my, uh, you know, literature diet that I can Yeah. And I, part of this is, um, Michael, you and I, I think Aaron was on the call last or on, on Wednesday when uh, Dylan brought up the I Don't Read Fiction article by Richard Tinning. Um, and so I, I read that this morning and it was really interesting because it, it talks about this. And I think, Michael, you were you were there at that conference of two researchers that really had this like explosive commentary where one researcher who was you know, very like critical theory aligned, questioning the obesity epidemic uh, as a, you know, as, as not, not real in, in a way and, and commented um, or critiqued, which is what Tinning uh, talks about, is critiqued a researcher who has a lot of NIH funding and NSF funding and has done a lot of physical activity research. And so they, you know, both of them have uh, notions of truth and right and correct in their argument, but you know where the truth probably lies is somewhere in the middle. And I think that you know we are we do have silos in this in this field, and we have do do have silos in research that people just don't break out of, and they think that their answer is right, and they refuse to read the other side. And you know maybe maybe that 
person thinks that they are right because that's their research and they've gotten funding and based on that funding they think that they are they are correct and um, so I don't know I, I don't know if there's a question there or if it's just a comment of bringing in that article but I found it I found it a really good like interesting read about the discourse that we have in in our conferences and I think that's the only time that you are able to confront a and again I, I think confront is the wrong word because I don't I don't feel like it should be combative but it put a perspective on getting a tough question at a conference and how I react to them so I don't know like have you experienced this at a conference when somebody asks you a really tough question that you feel like is attacking you personally whereas it was probably just to get more information about your research I so I haven't had I mean I have I haven't had any that are you know overly contentious I think um, but even when there's just some tough questions that might poke at a, a weakness in the work that I've done. Um, I've just become aware that I've, I've just not been prepared to deal with that. Um, I don't think I went through grad school uh, kind of getting hammered with the really tough questions and having to respond to them so that when they come up, uh, instinctually, you know, you might have those defense mechanisms uh, as opposed to the more reflective um, thought process. And, you know, a couple of days later, I'm usually in that reflective stance, but that person who's asking me the tough question is no longer there <laughs> to hear my answer. So it's just inadequate. Um, so, you know, I wonder if uh, as a consequence of not having these really tough debates, um, we don't develop those types of practices where we're really are able to respond in a way that's reflective and scholarly and, and so forth. You know, I think that those conversations are actually really great to either hear um, at a conference or be a part of. Um, obviously, we, we want those questions to happen in a respectable way, right? But I think that it's a way to allow, if the questions are being asked at you, or at me, I appreciate it because I think it allows me to see what other people see because sometimes, you know, we have, we do have blindfolds on. That's just part of being a person, right? Um, being a human being. And I think that um, people asking those tough questions allows us to think more broadly about what we do and, and what the purpose of our research is. And hopefully broaden our horizon a little bit, right? Like, I don't think that anybody should be so stuck in their ways that they aren't able to see other people's opinions or ways. And I think that those opinions can, can in a sense, help us um, to kind of meet that happy medium, right, Risto, where uh, we do see other perspectives and other sides and think about how that affects the research that we do and how it can make it stronger. Um, it kind of goes back to, at the beginning, you posed a question about, like, should we be debating this in writing in journals? Um, and I think that conferences um, and those dialogues, whether they happen on the front stage or maybe um, it's a conversation at the bar later, right? Some of the best conversations and collaborations happen in that social time afterwards where people aren't put on the spot, but the, the conversation happens in a constructive yet meaningful way. And the problem with um, 
writing those rebuttals in journals is that, A, it could often be mis mistaken um, because it's in writing and uh, when we're reading those things, we often see it as a critique, right? And so sometimes we're not open to critique. It's also there forever. And so when you have those things in writing, the thought, um, obviously thoughts change and thought processes change and over time things change. And so one of the reasons why we might not see those things now is because of how things do change and people being worried maybe about putting those things in writing, um, whether it's critique from senior scholars in the field or critique that might happen later on um, in their career and what what impact that might have on their career later on. So just yeah. a couple of thoughts. Yeah, and I think that the um, respectful language in, in a journal article is, is tough even, you know, even if you write a letter to somebody and you mean the best best way possible, you're like, I, I, I write this to make you a better scholar. And at the end you say respectfully submitted, you're like, that one line doesn't mean anything. You just like ripped apart my life's work and now you just say respectfully submitted. And so I could understand that that gets uh, misconstrued. And I think, I mean, being a, being a young scholar going up and writing a rebuttal against somebody not the most comfortable thing to do, you know? And I think that that's why more of these senior scholars are doing those, uh, those rebuttals. Um, in, in that example, it just strikes me that it, you would have to t be confrontational. So I, you know, if somebody writes an article I disagree with, I would have to confront them with a submission of, you know, this rebuttal, which, you know, doesn't make sense. These conversations could be curated by the journals. Um, so think about we have special issues. There's a special issue on Don Hellison coming out and JTPE. There could be a special issue that um, facilitates a debate around curricular models. I'm just spitballing examples here, um, but actually kind of brings people in to say, hey, there's some real tension that should be talked about in our field and it should be a healthy dialogue and let's have a special focus around, around that topic. So that could just be another way to move this forward if we value it. Yeah. And I think, you know, even this podcast that we're recording right now is a form of, or a new form of rebuttal or critique. However, like, we all, we all know that this is being put out into the world. So, I don't think we're going to take a very critical stance. Like I'm not going to, and maybe Hal Lawson will listen to this. Maybe he won't, but like, I wouldn't come on here and trash an article I dislike. Right. I just wouldn't choose to talk about that article. You know what I mean? And I think that maybe, maybe when I'm like 60 years old and I'm still running this podcast and we're on like episode 10,000, you know, like maybe at that point I could be I could be a little bit more free in in giving my opinion or saying that, oh, I dislike this paper a lot. This is why and have those reasons for it. But, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be in a written form. Maybe it can be in in a debate in this way. But I also think that there are power dynamics in in the field. And if you're waiting for tenure or promotion to full professor, you're less likely to speak up because those will be the peers who are going to be writing your letters. So 
I don't know if that's a smart way to make <laughs> make enemies early in your in your career. This might shift the conversation a little bit, and it kind of it, it. So feel free to sideline this if if you don't want to go in this direction, but. I feel like that these debates in some sense are very U.S. centric, especially when we're talking about like kinesiology versus physical education. And maybe that's like my misunderstanding, but I feel like the U.S. tends to have problems of situating ourselves as physical education within the world. Um, like we have those issues more than other people outside of the U.S. Is that is that my perception? I would, I would agree with you. I mean, maybe, and, and I, I guess I would agree with you because I have been through the U.S. education system and I've gotten my doctorate in a U.S. institution from, you know, and taking classes with a senior scholar who was around when these 1990 debates and paradigm wars and all these things happened in the U.S. And so... I mean, I, I would agree, but also I think I was very sheltered in the sense in certain uh, certain papers that I just didn't see come across and I wasn't exposed to until after I left grad school and started reading a lot more. So maybe there is a debate going on in the UK or the Australian, New Zealand uh, community that's more, more open, but I think these debates um, you know, that I know of have been US-centric and the the struggle has been kinesiology with, and physical education in the U.S., but I think the U.S. also was the leader in physical education research in in the eighties, you nineties, know, early two thousands, and you know that's shown by even the review of uh, research on teaching and uh, PE that we did with Steve and Dylan and Dario. You know, we looked at a thousand articles over 20 years and, you know, I think 55% or something like that were from the U.S. And if you add U.S. and U.K., it was like 75, 80%. So that's just where the research has been. Not saying that other research is less valid, but a lot of people come to the U.S. to study and learn physical education and they go out and get jobs in there in other countries. And I think that's changing and that has changed. There's a ton of good universities and there's U.S. students that are going abroad to get their doctorates now. So, but, uh, yeah, me, that's a question. I'm not sure how many people have kinesiology. It seems like kinesiology departments are just more prominent in the U.S. university systems and they talked about like these kind of research universities that are, I think, driving a lot of this conversation from the research perspective. And then these state colleges who a lot of times are like the R2 uh, model universities. So I think there's just more reach perhaps, uh, not to mention the private universities that, you know, drive this conversation around kinesiology, physical education, as well. So I definitely think the article was speaking from a United States perspective, and we might be able to learn from international colleagues how to situate this uh, in the future, because they certainly suggested like kinesiology did not always exist in U.S. universities, and that means it doesn't necessarily uh, exist eternally, you know, so we've got to 
figure out who we are. Yeah, and I think, you know, when kinesiology or movement science or human movement science or whatever you want to call it was coming up, the, the quote that I that I had to stop and copy and paste into my notes was um, they talked about physical education and, and the history of it. So it said they include Bresson's 1979 claims, like 70s, that the physical education profession was dead and with questions regarding whether the cause was murder or suicide. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> like that, that's things like did physical education as a, as a department. And this is like a 1970s, eighties argument that, you know, if you look at the percentage of what a physical education major was like most kinesiology programs were physical education major programs and then they started having these other um, movement science or physiology or sports psychology and they're all getting PE degrees and then you know in the last 20 years that's changed a lot so now you might have a faculty of 30 kinesiology professors in a huge program and two or three of them are PE where they were the PE program so I think that's, you know, if you do, uh, you know, a revisionist history on PE, where, where did that break happen? Where did, you know, where did AFERD go from being the biggest organization in this field in the 70s, 80s, and then now having a fraction of, of their membership? You know, I think that those are, those are certain things that kind of, you can't do an autopsy on a living thing, but, you know, looking back, like, where did that break happen and what what caused it? I, I wonder, Risto, to that question, if, so when they framed kinesiology as a helping discipline, I wasn't, I was like, is that always how the discipline has seen itself? I'm not sure it has. I think as certainly the, uh, research really ramped up in the different sub-disciplines. Um, sometimes it was about basic science and answering basic questions in a laboratory and not delivering outcomes to the public necessarily, whereas a helping profession is about public service and how do we improve people's lives. Um, so I don't know if there's an answer somewhere in there that uh, being more or less situated as a helping discipline but that did make me think about physical education and say, if, if it is a helping discipline, then I don't know how you can have a just form of kinesiology without physical education yeah. because it's, it's the mechanism. I mean, public schools enroll 95% of our population. Um, so I don't know if that means that that means every kinesiology department has to have a PE major. Um, some will, some won't, but certainly as we think about program cuts and, you know, we're in budget cuts right now because of COVID, um, you know, if we're helping discipline, then how do we deliver the goods and services that we offer to the public in a way that's equitable? Because yeah. um, otherwise, I don't think that claim would stand that we are a helping discipline. Yeah, but I think that PE as a field is easily or easier to answer these the three questions that they pose at the very end versus if you look at other uh, you know subsections of kinesiology so the three questions are and think about how PE would answer this 
who want, number one, who are the people we intend and need to serve? Number two, how can we best improve their lives? And number three, how do these two questions impact our research and development initiatives in tandem with the design and conduct of undergraduate and graduate education programs? And I think if you look at PE, it's fairly simple to answer those first two questions and move on to the third. I think that sometimes when it gets, you know, and that's why the state of California has zero kinesiology doctoral programs, is they grew into these big, you know, they went hard science, UCLA, biomechanics, started hiring faculty, and then all of a sudden you look around and you're like, oh, we should be in the College of Science and we're no longer a, you know, movement science program. We are in the College of Science doing this type of research because of the people that they hired in. And if you're in California and you're a really good master's student, you have to leave the state to go in and get your doctorate in kinesiology from unless you're willing to go some online program. So I think the good thing is PE can't answer those questions and I think we should. And I think we should have that conversation. But I'll, I'll thing, go ahead. Sorry, at the same time, I think though that, um, you know, kines- without kinesiology, like physical education wouldn't be, right? So a lot of the research that happens among kinesiologists, whether they identify as exercise science or biomechanics, um, that informs like all of the then what we present as pedagogies within physical education, right? If we think about the core and even creating physical, physically literate people, when we think about the movement portion of that, all of that research of how to be a, um, a safe mover comes from kinesiology, right? And so it really doesn't function without that. And I think that that's important to keep in mind as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that interdisciplinary work that should come out of this. And, and you're right. Like I mean, Larry Locke wrote about this at, early on and, you know, um, new hope for a dismal, dismal science, or I don't remember the exact, uh, title of that, but he talked about, there's a lack of good research in PE. We're not doing this systematically. And I think that's where kinesiology was way ahead of us. And they did have that good research and, they had a field of rigorous science to back themselves up. And that's probably why they evolved much faster out of a school of physical education than, than what we are now. So, um, but I'll, I'll kind of end with this. Um, I want to go back to the kind of the discourse and academic discourse piece. And I think, um, you know, the, Michael, when you talked about having this like defense mechanism come up when somebody com- confronts you uh, at a, you know, a research, you know, symposium where you're presenting really passionate research and somebody asks you a tough question. I think part of that is also having the awareness. Like if you read more and you understand that this person is not being mean, they're trying to push you as a scholar asking clarifying questions. So if you have the awareness of oh, this is not a threatening situation, my life is not at stake, or my reputation is not at stake, and you look at that as a, you know, less of a scary situation, I think you would, like, I would perceive that differently. And now, in hindsight, when, you know, someone like Ong Chen asks me a really tough question 
of my dissertation and my first semester out of grad school, I was really scared. But now I look at it and he pushed me to change my, you know, the, the way I do research because I think it would have been different if he asked me aside and said, hey, why didn't you do this in your research? Because it was such a public display, you know, and there are probably 25 people in that presentation. So it wasn't like anything crazy, but because it was done publicly, it was important to me and it it was ingrained in my head versus somebody just asking me later at the bar and saying, hey, why don't you do this? I might not have put so much like emphasis on that. So I, but at the same time, those are great places. And I've also been pushed by other scholars in those situations and it it was very meaningful for me. So um, I think the question is like, should it be done in public? Should it be done in private? Should it be done in public versus private when you're talking to a grad student or a first year versus someone who has tenure? And, you know, I don't know if you want to answer those or just leave it in the atmosphere to percolate and so, I don't know. Do you, do you have opinions on that, Aaron? I mean, I just think that there's, there's a place for all of it, right? Like, we're academics because our work needs to be challenged, and sometimes that has to happen in a public setting. Like, that's just part of what academia is, right? And if you don't have um, that, then you're right. Like, sometimes those conversations aren't taken serious because they're not done in a public forum. I think it's just important for people to remember that um, we're all human, right? And so making sure that when we when we challenge people that we think might need to be challenged or might need to be asked tough questions, that we do it in a respectful manner and with good intentions at heart, right? And I think that that, to me, is where um, it comes down to. Like, we need to have good intentions. We don't need to ask a question like, I'm going to get you, you know? Like, it should be like, I want to help you grow your thought process. And I have good intentions in asking this question. Yeah, Michael. Yeah, I, I agree. Well said. And I just add, um, so we need to have these in our subdiscipline, but the article really speaks to kinesiology and it seems to be limited space to have these in kinesiology. And if we are to have kind of a unified, uh, holistic vision, then that needs to happen. So we need to think about what are those forums. Um, There's some departments that are more comprehensive, like my department has most of the sub-disciplines. We have faculty in those different areas, you know, biomechanics or ex-phys, sports psych, et cetera. That can happen a little bit. Um, But as I was listening to this, you know, conversation develop, I thought, if you look at AERA, we all go there. Um, It's just a bunch of sub-disciplines. It's a bunch of AERA subdisciplines that get together and there's these cross-sectional conversations that can happen. Um, so that's possible. Um, I don't know. I guess Nakahee kind of has that model where possibly people can come from the different disciplines and interact and be exposed to the methods that people use and ask tough questions about them and so on. Um, so, yeah, I hope we have these in our pedagogy area, but also that we uh, open ourselves up to the other disciplines, sub-disciplines to kind of understand what their critiques are, what their methods are, and how they might intersect. Yeah. All right. I think we could continue on this conversation for 
several more minutes. But uh, let's let's cut the podcast here. Uh, for uh, those of you who are interested in that summer uh, book club, um, June 26th is the date that you should be reading that by. Uh, again, the um, title of the book is Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology by Michelle Miller. And you can find that um, and I'm going to give a plug here. My wife would tell you to look at the local bookstore and independent bookstores before you look on Amazon. Um, and I would be shamed if I did not talk about independent bookstores in this house. So um, look for that. Uh, but it is available on Amazon if you if you need it. Um, and then um, we'll link to the article by Lawson and Kretschmar that we talked about today. Um, after this, we have um, an Urban PE podcast, and then episode 100 is going to launch on um, June the 9th. And uh, during the summer, we're going to launch a summer uh, pedagogy seminar. So this is a doctoral seminar with uh, 12 to 14 um, researchers that come in, and uh, we'll launch that. Uh, two times a month and then go in to the fall. So it'll be a great way for you to kind of uh, be a fly on the wall in a doctoral seminar. And so we'll be uh, sharing some more information about that uh, coming up. So um, again, you can follow us on uh, Twitter at the HPE podcast and use the website www.thepewebsite.com. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it.